Well, the Grammys. Did you see the Grammys this past week? The Grammys are the music industry's award show. Ironically, the 2012 edition began with a prayer to God and ended with an ode to Satan. Thanks to the Grammys, 40 million viewers watched Nicki Minaj stage satanic rituals like levitation and demon possession and sexualized torture and an exorcism. Even altar boys danced around in sexually suggestive maneuvers. Creepy, dark, evil, deplorable were all a few of the adjectives used to describe her act. Sadly for Nikki, you got the feeling that it might not just be an act. But as shocking as the Grammys' depiction of Satanism might have been to us, if the show had aired on 19th century B.C. Amorite TV, I doubt if anyone would have batted an eye. For Canaan land was a hotbed for all things demonic. Sexualized shamanism was a common practice in the ancient world. You see, God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the land of Canaan. But these faithful men never felt at home there. They were strangers in a strange land. Remember the evils of Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, that was just the tip of the iceberg. The Canaanites indulged in occult fertility rites and temple prostitution, even child sacrifice. Hey, the Grammys would have had plenty of programming. Flashback to the days of Noah. Something weird and evil happened on planet Earth. It was so repulsive, God flooded out humanity and had to start over. If you read Genesis 6, it's implied that there was sexual intermingling between humans and demons. Something you might see in a Nicki Minaj video. The Bible refers to the offspring of these perverted unions as giants. The Hebrew word is Nephilim, which means fallen ones. Jude 6 talks about the demons that did not keep their proper domain. They crossed over proper boundaries. They failed to maintain those proper boundaries. They materialized as humans to impregnate women. This was awful. This is what precipitated the flood. It's interesting, Genesis 6 verse 9 says that God started over with Noah because he was perfect in his generations, or we might say pure in his lineage. Now flash ahead to the days of Moses. Now after Abraham, the deliverer returns Israel to the edge of the promised land and the nations send in spies and the reconnaissance reports giants in the land. Oh my, it's the return of the Nephilim. It was a post-flood outbreak of Nicki Minaj type demonism. Still later, David's arch enemy is another Nephilim named... Goliath. I know this all sounds so strange. Dark, sinister, sexual perversions were occurring in our distant past with your great, 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 great Grammy. Glad you got one of the jokes this morning. 
But what Nicki Minaj gave you a taste of at this year's Grammys was nothing unusual in the land God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When first promised, the promised land was a perverted land. Now last week we talked about the Abrahamic covenant. Out of all the families of the world, God chose one man and made to him three promises. Abraham inherits a chunk of land. His descendants will become a great nation, and through his seed, a special heir, all the nations will be blessed. Land, nation, blessing. That's the Abrahamic covenant. We define the land as Canaan, what is today the land of Israel. We define the nation as the nation of the Jews, Israel. The land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the seed through whom the blessing comes is Jesus. That's what Paul teaches us in Galatians. Now these were three important promises. And God invested them in one family. The children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But narrowing down his redemptive plan to a single family made God's strategy far more vulnerable. Abraham's offspring would be a great nation, but at the time of their choosing, they were just an average family. Genesis 46 adds up 70 people, kids and grandkids. I mean, the nation was really just a fair-sized extended family. You see, here's God's dilemma in the 19th century B.C. A corrupt Canaanite culture is strong and influential. It's like a Hollywood on steroids. Whereas Abraham's family is susceptible. It's very impressionable. It's just getting started. Now all Satan has to do is to pollute a single family. And all of salvation for all mankind will suddenly be over. It'll be snuffed out instantly. If Satan can pollute that single family. The challenge for God. How can he protect this small band of people from extinction? Think of a little lamb surrounded by a dozen wolves. Closing in for the kill. I mean how will God's vulnerable few survive in a land of devouring evil? You see if God had left Abraham's family defenseless in Canaan. They would have been gobbled up by the culture. In just a few generations, they they would have disappeared through intermarriage and cultural assimilation and spiritual compromise. God needed to get them somewhere protected where they could grow in number and gain strength until He could equip them to stand out as a separate culture and people. And thus, God's answer was twofold. Egypt... And covenant. You see, we too live in hostile surroundings. We live in a sexualized world of evil spiritual influence. But this is the Christian's calling. We've been called to be in the world, but not of it. Our job is infiltration. God has given us an internal power. His Holy Spirit lives in our hearts to make a difference in the world. But Abraham's family didn't have this internal spirit. God needed to protect them from evil influences until they could grow strong enough to survive and maintain their distinctiveness. Thus, his strategy for Israel was isolation, segregation, not infiltration. And so God loaded them up 
and he moved them to Egypt. You see, Egypt was the one country on earth at the time where God's people could remain completely segregated. The ancient Egyptians were racist. They believed Egyptians descended from the gods, thus marriage to a non-Egyptian was unthinkable. The Hebrews in Egypt had no opportunity to mingle with the locals. So, at the end of Genesis, we find God's providence engineering Joseph from a pit to a prison to the pinnacle of power in preparation for a famine that strikes Canaan. Joseph is in command in Egypt, orchestrating things for God's goodwill toward his people. Israel left for Egypt to survive the famine, but they stayed 400 years. Due to Joseph's influence, Israel's first years in Egypt were prosperous ones. I mean, they multiplied like rabbits. But when the Pharaoh came to power who didn't know Joseph, their plight changed. They were forced into slavery. But here's how you have to think of their time in Egypt. Think of Egypt as a mother's womb. Did you know the safest nine months for your child, your child will ever... No, they'll never be more safe than the nine months they spend in their mother's womb, in utero. Well, this was like Israel's time in Egypt. Their seclusion in Egypt gave this baby nation time to grow and gain strength. So much so that they could come back to the land and they could survive in this evil, wicked land of Canaan. Don't ever assume that God gets caught by surprise. Even difficult scenarios are part of his plan. Israel's bondage in Egypt had been predicted by God. In Genesis 15, when God cuts the covenant with Abraham, he speaks of his family's future. He says this, Your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them. And they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, 600 years before any of this happens, God says that He will judge Egypt. He will bless the Hebrews. He will bring the Hebrews out of Egypt. And He will use the children of Israel to punish the evil of the Amorites. You see, it was all in God's design. Seventy people went down to Egypt. They returned six million strong. Woodson was a visiting pastor who got carried away. Can you imagine that? He just preached on and on and on. Finally, the host pastor, he started shouting, Amen, Pharaoh! They looked at him kind of strange, but the host pastor said it again. Amen, Pharaoh! He kept saying it. Amen, Pharaoh. Well, after it was all over, the the guest preacher, he turned to his host and he said, Man, he said, what did you mean, amen, Pharaoh? Well, the pastor of the church, he replied, he said, Boy, he says, I was just trying to get you to let my people go. (laughs) Well, that's what Moses told the Pharaoh. Let God's people go. And God backed it up with ten plagues aimed squarely at the idols of Egypt. The Egyptians, they worshipped the Nile and the frog and the cow and the sun and even the firstborn. And guess where God targeted His attacks? He proved to Egypt that all their gods 
were futile against Him. The great I Am is the only true God. The final plague was most important. On the night before the Jews exodus from Egypt, death passed over every home in Egypt, killing every firstborn son. But God provided a means of deliverance. He always does. If you slaughtered a lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of your home, death and its plague would then pass over. It would see the blood and it would pass over your house. The folks inside would be saved, not because of their own merit or their own good works, but due to the blood on the doorpost. And it was all a type of all God's covenants. God always seals His deals with blood. Salvation has nothing to do with our moral scorecard or our good works or our religious observance. It is always determined by our faith in God's sacrifice. Well, the next day, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. They come to Egypt a family and they depart from Egypt a nation. Moses led them through the Red Sea. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul refers to it as a baptism of sorts. It marked a new beginning. You see, the children of Israel went from slaves to freemen, from nobodies to a great nation, from an army of brick masons to the army of the Lord. After exiting Egypt, Moses headed at God's command to a mountain called Sinai. It took Israel three months to arrive, and along the way they learned lessons. Every day they awoke to the wonder bread, the manna laying on the ground. God brought water from a rock. They won a decisive victory over the Amalekites. You read about it in the first few chapters of Exodus. Recall when God walked through the animal parts to seal the covenant with Abraham. He appeared as smoke and as fire, as a smoking furnace and as a a burning torch. Well, now God leads Israel with smoke and fire. This time the cloud by day and the fire by night. God was reminding His people that He keeps covenant. There's a great debate today in biblical archaeology over the true location of Mount Sinai. There's at least a dozen different proposed sites. The traditional site of Mount Sinai is a colossal outcropping of rock that rises 7,500 feet above sea level. It looks like a giant pulpit rising out of the ground. Whichever is the true Mount Sinai, we don't know. But God did use it as His pulpit. You see, it was never God's intention to rush Israel straight into the promised land. They needed preparation. God wanted to teach them His truth. He wanted to prepare His people. Most importantly, He wanted to establish a protective covenant for Israel before they entered back into the land. Recall, God always works through a covenant. He wants a relationship with us, but not just any relationship. He demands a relationship on His own terms. You see, everybody today, every celebrity out there says they love God. Oh, they believe in God. But the true test is whether you're willing to submit to the expectation God sets out in His covenant. You see, a relationship of convenience isn't a covenant relationship. Israel's destiny was to return to the land that God promised and to be a holy nation in an unholy world. But to do so, God has to arm her 
with a covenant. Now Israel camped at the base of Mount Sinai for over a year. They camped at God's pulpit for over a year. Exodus 19 through Numbers 10 all takes place at the mountain of God. Over 57 chapters, mind you, record what happened at Mount Sinai in making the covenant between God and His people. In other words, God took His time. He wanted His people to behold His glory, to learn His truth, to know His heart. At Sinai, God entered another covenant with Abraham's family, this time through Moses. And Exodus 19 begins for us the Mosaic Covenant. Let's start reading this morning in verse 3 of Exodus 19. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. God points out immediately that he's on their side. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. He's just shaken the greatest kingdom in the world. He's embarrassed their idols in head-to-head competition. He has humbled the most powerful ruler on the planet. He's loosened the Pharaoh's terrible grip. They should never doubt his love for them. And then God uses some beautiful imagery to describe his treatment of this new nation. He says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. For three months, he had brought them through the wilderness to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. All the time, the Hebrews had been marching through the mountainous area there in the Sinai Peninsula. And they had watched the mother eagles stretch out their wings, their huge wingspans, and catch their little eaglets on their feathers. When one would fall from the nest, the mama bird would swoop to the rescue just before it smacked the ground. And this is what God had done for Israel over those Last three months, he had carried the nation on eagle's wings. They needed food, and he provided bread supernaturally. They wanted water, so he provided it miraculously from a rock. A skilled army attacks a group of untrained slaves, and again, God flaps to their rescue. God was teaching Israel to trust him. They needed to walk by faith. Now notice verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. Recall, God chose Abraham out of all the peoples of the earth. You know, we say that Israel is God's nation, but really all the nations belong to God. Yet God chose Israel to be a special treasure. Above all people. This reminds me of Zechariah 2 verse 8. There it's said of Israel, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. You know, I don't like to stump my toe or bump my head, but it happens from time to time. I survive. And yet my eye is different. Seldom do I ever get poked in the eye. Why? My eye, you know, I care about my... It comes with special reflexes. My reflexes are faster when it comes to my eye. In fact, I have a designated lid, a shutter that goes over the top of my eye that protects my eye. You do too. I'm far more sensitive about my eye than I am my foot or my head. 
And this is how God feels about the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He treats them as the apple of his eye. This nation was a special treasure. God cherished Israel. Of course, Israel didn't deserve such treatment. They were a stubborn lot. In Deuteronomy 9 verse 4, God speaks to the second generation of Hebrews that enters the land. After he drives out the enemy, he warns Israel, Do not think because of my righteousness the Lord has brought me into this land. He defeated the Canaanites not because of their sin. I'm sorry, he defeated the Canaanites because of their sin. Not because of Israel's goodness. They didn't deserve the victory. He used them as a tool of judgment. In Deuteronomy 7 verse 7, Moses says to the same generation, The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. I mean, why God chose the family of Abraham over every other family on earth, it doesn't make sense. We don't know. But guess what? Grace never makes sense. I mean, a lot of folks are still scratching their head wondering why God chose me. There are some people scratching their head wondering why God chose you too. All I know is that when grace is earned, it's no longer grace. God blessed Israel because He chose to love her and favor her. And now He's asking Israel to enter a covenant with Him. God says to them in verse 6, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is a call to enormous privilege and responsibility. You see, God is going to love Israel, treat her like a treasure. But in return, Israel needs to treat God with special dedication. Israel is assuming here a unique calling. Jacob's family will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God chose Israel to be a light to all the other nations of the earth. Remember, rather than working with mankind as a whole, God chose one family. And now God plans to use that family as a witness to the world. Israel will be a signpost to the nations. Through Israel, God will teach His truth to the world. He'll shine His light. People will learn of God by watching Israel. The family of Abraham will serve a priestly role and draw other nations to the worship of God. Now within Israel, God designated one tribe, the family of Levi, to serve as the priests. Levi will assume the administration of the sacrifices in the temple worship. Levi will have a priestly role among the tribes of Israel. But in the same way, Israel will have a priestly role among the tribes of the world. God loved Israel as a special treasure. but That didn't negate His love for other nations. And God's means of reaching the world was through Israel. Old Testament evangelism depended on Israel. This is the Mosaic Covenant. But notice what happens next. Verse 7. So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. So Moses brought, the, brought back the words of the people to the Lord. 
Now notice the difference between the Mosaic Covenant and the covenant that God made with Abraham. When Abraham cut the covenant, God walked through the animal parts all by himself. This was a unilateral covenant. God was accepting the responsibility for this covenant. All Abraham did was wake up, look on, and believe. But here the people do more. They accept their part in the covenant. They have a role. The people answer God. All the Lord has spoken, we will do. You see, the Mosaic covenant required not just faith, but total obedience. Later in Exodus 24, Moses leads the elders of Israel up to the mountain of God to offer a sacrifice and officially accept the terms of this covenant. The elders agree to God's word. And, and Moses, he does something really strange. He, he takes the blood of the sacrifice and he sprinkles the blood over the crowd of people. Imagine being out in that crowd and all of a sudden having warm cow's blood rain down on top of your head. As we've noted, all of the covenants, they're initiated by grace. They're entered into by faith. And then they're signed or sealed by blood. Read Exodus 24. God celebrates the covenant by revealing His glory. Now understand, just as there were three parts to the Abrahamic covenant, land, nation, blessing, there are also three parts to the Mosaic covenant. The law, the sacrificial system, and the blessings and the curses. Three parts. The law, the sacrifices, and the blessings and the curses. And with the rest of the time we have this morning, we're going to explore each of these three. Now, when we think of the law, we usually think of God's top ten, don't we? The Ten Commandments. But that was just the tip of the iceberg. Did you know one rabbi counted 613 commandments? He counted 248 do's and 365 don'ts. There was a don't for every day of the year. The law consisted of three types of laws. First were the moral laws. These were God's standards for personal character and sexuality. Second were the civil or social laws. And these governed life as it related to the land of Canaan and the conditions there. And then third were the ceremonial laws. These were kept to symbolize the work of Jesus. Now remember the purpose of the Mosaic Covenant. It was to separate and segregate Israel from all the other nations. It set them apart from Canaanite culture. It's interesting. Three times in the law it reads, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. We read that and we think, What's the big deal? <laughs> the Jewish rabbis turned that into a big deal. They made it the basis for this intricate system of kosher laws. In reality, boiling a goat in its mother's milk had to do with a Canaanite fertility rite that God didn't want His people to adopt. He was trying to separate them from Canaanite culture. Again, the law set Israel apart from the Nicki Minaj culture of Canaan. It defined Israel as God's people by way of conduct and character and ceremony. It's also been pointed out that after 400 years of brutish slavery, the bar of decency and morality needed to be raised for the Israelites. 
I mean, when a person lives year in, year out, generation after generation, fighting for their survival as a slave, they tend to cut corners and they lose their moral sensibilities. For example, Leviticus 19, verse 14. One of the commands, it reads, You shall not put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. You know, I mean, what kind of society needs to be told you shouldn't trip blind people? Give me a break. If you've got to be told not to pick on blind people, I mean, you've sunk to a low level. That's what had happened to Israel. They had a low morality. They needed to be resensitized to their communal obligations. In short, the law taught the nation how to love God and how to love one another. I mean, just look at the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 5 deal with the love that we should have for God. Commandments 6 through 10 address our love for our fellow man. The two tablets of the Ten Commandments, how to love God, how to love each other. In Matthew 22, a rabbinical scholar, he asked Jesus this question. He says, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus answers, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus tells us something amazing. He says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. He's saying that this is what the law is all about. You can sum it all up in, in two things. How to love God and how to love one another. That's the law. The Mosaic Covenant gave us a picture of how love is done. But there was more to the covenant than just laws. It's interesting that in Exodus 20, immediately following the Ten Commandments, God's Big Ten, the very next set of commands, verses 22 to 26, relate to the construction of a sacrificial altar. This means God knew that we would break His commandments no sooner than He had given them. We would break them and we would need to offer a sacrifice and obtain forgiveness. As soon as He gave the laws, He prepared for them to be broken. The Mosaic Covenant set up a whole system of proper sacrifice. Now in the Garden of Eden, immediately after the first sin, God revealed the need for a sacrifice. You remember Adam and Eve, they clothed themselves in fig leaves, the work of their own hands. God, though, replaced the leaves with animal skins, which required the death of an animal, a sacrifice. Up until this point in history, God expected a sacrifice, but how and when and who and where needed to be codified. You see, this had caused some confusion. The pagans also made sacrifices to their gods. God wanted to keep His worship pure and separate. And so He provided a sacrificial system for His people. It included four elements. Sacrifices, priests, the tabernacle, and the feasts. Leviticus 1 through 9 outlines the different types of sacrifices that you could offer. Leviticus also instructs the people authorized to make the sacrifices, the priests. Sections of Exodus sound like a set of blueprints. They're giving instructions to Moses on how he needs to build the place of sacrifice, the tabernacle. 
And then Leviticus 23 to 25 is God's day timer. It's His calendar. He instructs His people on the times of the sacrifices, the feasts. Now ultimately, everything about the sacrifices look to Jesus. The New Testament calls Jesus the Lamb of God. All the sacrifices were fulfilled on the cross. The book of Hebrews chapter 4 verse 14 refers to Jesus as our great high priest. He's our priest. John 1 verse 14 says of Jesus, The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. When Jesus mentioned the toppling of the temple, how He would rebuild it in three days, He was speaking of His bodily resurrection, John tells us. I mean, Jesus was God's one dwelling place on the earth. He was the one-stop shop where you could find God. And Jesus fulfills all the Jewish feasts. He is our Passover. By faith, apply His blood to the doorposts of your heart, and death and all of its plagues will pass over you through God's grace. The entire sacrificial system was to point to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus. Well, finally, the third part of the Mosaic Covenant was the blessings and the curses, or as some people might refer to it, the choice. Israel would always be under this covenant, but how it played out would be up to them. If Israel obeyed God, then He would bless them extravagantly. But if Israel disobeyed the covenant, God would curse them brutally. Either way, through extreme blessing or through extreme cursing, the world would look on the plight of Israel and say the God of Israel must be God. One author, he writes of this covenant, it was like a marriage. God married Israel. God irrevocably linked Himself to a nation and the nation Israel irrevocably linked themselves to God. It was a for better or for worse union. I like to think of it more as a parent-child kind of relationship. You know, my kids will always be my kids. It doesn't matter what they do. It doesn't matter what stupid thing they dream up. My kids will always be my kids. We'll always be family. But you walk into my house and at times you'll find them at the head of the table being honored, being blessed. Other times you'll find them out in the woodshed. It all depends on the respect they show the covenant relationship we have. Well, this was how it worked for Israel. They were always God's people. Sometimes they were blessed, sometimes they were cursed. For 3,500 years, this has been the case for the nation Israel. This is still the case for Israel today. Reminds me of a line from Fiddler on the Roof. Tevye, he says to God, I know, I know, we are your chosen people, but once in a while, can't you choose someone else? Israel's role in the Mosaic Covenant placed the Jews in the spotlight. Global attention has now been cast on this tiny little nation. Still in, it's still today. And for better or worse, in blessing and in cursing, Israel is and will be God's witness to the world. Now if you comb through the two chapters that lay out the blessings and the curses, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, you'll see how precise these predictions have been. I mean, the annals of history have fulfilled these passages. 
For example, the reigns of Kings David and Solomon, they were the high point. When Israel followed after God, he blessed the nation with military conquests and and increased wealth and full storehouses. Deuteronomy 28 verse 13 sums it up. The Lord will make you the head and not the tail. You shall be above only and not beneath if you heed the commandments of the Lord. This happened during the reigns of David and Solomon. 1 Kings chapter 10 is a great case study of Old Testament evangelism at work. The queen of Sheba, she hears about Solomon's wisdom and wealth. She caravans all the way to Jerusalem to see for herself. When she arrives, she confesses, the half was not told me. And then she goes on to praise God for blessing Solomon's reign. But Old Testament evangelism also worked in reverse. (coughs) Deuteronomy 28 predicts terrible days. Days that will come after Israel's disobedience. Verse Verse 52 of Deuteronomy 28 foresees cities under siege and populations facing starvation. Jewish residents resort to cannibalism in an effort to survive. It's all laid out in Deuteronomy 28. This actually happened in 586 B.C. during the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem. It occurred again in 70 A.D. when the Romans laid siege and eventually burned down the temple. The Jews not crucified by the Romans were sold into slavery exactly as was predicted in the last verse of Deuteronomy chapter 28. I saw a documentary once. It, it sent goosebumps up and down your spine. It was a documentary on the Holocaust where photos were shown and then at the bottom of each of the photographs were verses out of Deuteronomy chapter 28. It was ominous. Read verse 67. In the morning you shall say, Oh, that it was evening. At evening you shall say, Oh, that it was morning. Because of the fear which terrifies your heart and because of the sight which your eyes will see. God promised Israel that if they disobeyed and violated the covenant, they would see sights that they would cover their eyes to try to keep from seeing. The last 2,000 years of Jewish history are summarized in verses 64 through 66 of Deuteronomy 28. It says, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other, And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Your life shall hang in doubt. You shall fear day and night and have no assurance of life. This has been the last 2,000 years of Jewish history, how they've been scattered to the four corners of the earth. Sadly, under the Mosaic Covenant, Israel experienced a lot more cursing than blessing. They disobeyed God. They refused to live by faith. I mean, it starts right at the beginning. I mean, Moses, he leaves the camp to behold God's glory on top of the mountain. And he doesn't even come down off of the mountain before the children of Israel have erected a golden calf and they're dancing around the idol in Nicki Minaj-style lewdness. I mean, God has to send a plague. As soon as they leave Mount Sinai, Numbers chapter 14, Israel marches to the promised land. But what happens? They refuse to enter. They're afraid of the giants. 
And true to His covenant, God curses Israel. The generation that exited Egypt dies in the wilderness. God repeats the covenant to their kids. This is what Deuteronomy is all about. The word Deuteronomy, it means second law. God is now preparing a new generation. It's it's fascinating. When the children of Israel finally do cross the Jordan River and they take a few victories, their new leader, Joshua, he ushers them to the very heart of the land. He takes them to the Shechem Valley. And he conducts sort of a promised land pep rally. That's what you could call it. This is such a significant event and such a significant sight. Shechem was the first place in Canaan where God promised the land to Abraham. At the time, he had no child even. Now God's word has been fulfilled. Abraham comes back, a great nation, several million strong. They're back in the land. They've regained a foothold. They're on the march. They're taking possession of all that God has promised them. And in Joshua chapter 8, they come to Shechem. North of Shechem's slender valley is Mount Ebal. South of the valley is Mount Gerizim. Both peaks rise about 3,000 feet. Joshua then splits the tribes of Israel. He sends half of them to one mountain, half of them to the other mountain. Imagine from Mount Ebal, a million voices shout out the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Then from Mount Gerizim, a million voices shout out the blessings that God promises. I mean, this was an awesome experience. This sent goosebumps up and down your spine. They were declaring their future before it came to pass. The choice would be theirs, according to the covenant God made with Moses. Now, as I said earlier, history shows Israel's future held far more cursing than blessings. The nation was unable to keep the law. The sacrifices merely covered sin. They didn't remove man's uncleanness or change his heart. And so again, God comes to the rescue with another covenant. Man needed a savior. And so God makes another covenant with a king named David. And next week, we'll delve into the Davidic covenant. And there we have it. There's the Mosaic Covenant. Father, thank You for Your Word today and for Your love for us. Lord, we learn from all of this that You're a covenant-keeping God. That You desire relationship with us, but, but on Your terms, not ours. Lord, we have to be obedient. We have to walk by faith. We have to trust You. We have to lean on You. Lord, I pray you'll strengthen our faith today. Lord, we're thankful that you are using your church today to infiltrate this world, to shine the light and love of Jesus. Lord, we desire your blessing today, not because we deserve it. We know, Lord, that it's all about grace. We thank you for Israel's example of old, its example still today. We thank you for the lessons we learned through the law of Moses. And we thank you that it points us the ultimate sacrifice to Christ upon the cross to our Lord Jesus who loved us enough to die in our place we thank you we eternally thank you Lord Jesus we praise you together today thank you for being our Lord and our Savior and we pray these things in Jesus name Amen